Everything you know about health is about to change. Welcome to Straight Talk on Health with Dr. Vincent Medici. Sometimes people suffer not from lack of faith, but from lack of knowledge. This is the show that changes that. If you are tired of being sick, tired of not getting answers, tired of spinning in circles, for healing is not a mystery. It is a miracle that you were designed to experience. It takes hard work and real knowledge. It takes patience and time. It takes the education this show can provide. So get it straight today. Here's Dr. Medici. Good morning. I'm Dr. Vincent Medici. Do I have a show for you? First, we start with a story. Then I'm going to have you listen to a video. I'll make little comments on the video along the way. This is an interview of a journalist, a young man who runs a, a site called Unheard, U-N-H-E-R-D. And he's been doing the most provocative, intelligent, in-depth interviews on coronavirus for months now. He's really absolutely outstanding. He's going to interview two epidemiologists out of Oxford. Both, I think, are at least in their 70s or late 60s and have been doing epidemiology for a long, long time. They go back through three epidemics in their own words, and they have, again, I guess what you'd say is information confirming what I've been spouting on this show for the last four months. But it's just great to hear them do it, them put it together, and I'll stop the video as you listen to it and make commentary. If you're new to the show, I'm Dr. Vincent Medici. This is Straight Talk on Health. Get to my website, straighttalk.cc, and listen to all the shows, all 477, I think, at this point. All right, here we go. But here's the story. This week, fairly close to where I operate, is the Orange County Board of Health. It is the place in Orange County. And unknown to me, all of a sudden, there's this large crowd gathering with news anchors, cameras, the whole thing. And I'm like, what is this? So I walk over because I know something's going on. It's the Board of Education. And I watch. And I was, well, amazed. You know, you can hear about it. You can read about it. But when you actually live it, and this is something all of you should do if you can. So what is it? It's a gathering because on that evening, the Orange County School Board was going to vote as to whether or not they're going to keep the schools open, the grammar schools, the high schools open, come this fall or close. And this, of course, is the big nation world debate. And so people are gathering, and there are clearly two groups. There's a small group of about 30 women and a large group of about 100, 150, thereabouts, I didn't count, people in the other group. And lo and behold, it starts. So with megaphones, there are different speakers and what they're all saying on megaphones so the whole crowd can listen, being, being filmed by about seven different news agencies is a guy standing up there, and he's talking about the prospect of opening the schools, which he's clearly against, is a way for poor people who live in the hood, who have less, to be murdered. And this is what I'm listening to. He's basically making the case that this is a racist decision being considered to open the schools, the grammar schools, the high schools, come this September, because... Clearly, the statistics show, according to what he's saying, kids will die and poor kids will die. And this is what always happens. And this needs to stop. And he's got a 100 or so people around him. And they're unifying on this. And he's working the crowd. And I'm listening to this. And I walked up to the anchor guy, one of them, and I said, what does this have to do with the fundamental issue? The issue is, is it safe or dangerous? And what data supports what? In far as making a decision as to whether open the schools in the fall. I said, why is this a racial issue? Why aren't kids from Laguna and Corona del Mar and people places where people ostensibly make more money? Well, this is just as much a decision for them as anybody. Why is this being reduced to a racial issue? 
and then you look at the groups that are there, the ones that are for the assembly of people there. It was about 30 people. It wasn't a lot of people. They were there, and they were all cowering because there was such an aggressive vibe. And I was like, wow, this is interesting. There's about 30 women huddled together under a tree in silence that are clearly, because of the signs, pro-opening the schools. Moms with kids in school that see it one way, and then clearly a larger group saying, no, this can't happen, not because science shows it's dangerous, but because history shows that poor people get sacrificed with experiments. And this is exactly what these guys are saying. And I'm listening to them, and I'm listening to how they articulate. And I'm looking at them, and I'm realizing these guys are paid. Their paid decisions in Orange County was a bunch of rehearsed speeches by people I have no doubt have nothing to do with having kids in school and everything to do with making a point as paid performance. And where it was going was towards aggression, hostility, anger, and God knows what else after that. And I saw this. And the news crews didn't want to talk to me. I was coming up to them and I was saying at least two I went up and I said, what does this have to do with the decision at hand? This sounds like somebody talking about the divide across race. It was so inappropriate. It was so unintelligent. And yet it was so greased and slick and rehearsed and deliberate. And I said, wow, this is exactly what I hear happens. And now I'm seeing it right in my own backyard. Well, I'm glad to say not too long after, nine cop cars pull up. And the police get out, and they're ready. They are ready. And the message is, if there's going to be trouble here, it's going to be bad. So everybody stay cool. Everybody stay calm. Say your piece. But it isn't going any further than that. And I'm telling you right now, because I just saw it in my own backyard in Orange County this week. I saw tensions flare. And God forbid those tensions had gone to another level. And then what do we have? Well, what we don't have is science. What we don't have are people thinking intelligently who look at statistics and who understand we have these so-called experiments going on across the world, all of which show children do not get sick from this. The statistics are very, very low. You're going to hear two epidemiologists today. And if I don't get to it completely, get on the website and listen. Since England has been dealing with this since late February, there have been six children who have died of coronavirus. Six. And you can trust what these two guys are saying, because these guys are on it. They are as deeply entrenched in epidemiology of the coronavirus and every other coronavirus, every other pandemic for the last 40 years. Six. We have similar results coming out of Scandinavia. It doesn't matter whether it was Sweden, which did a soft lockdown, or Denmark, or Norway, or anybody. Kids resist this, and they resist this so overwhelmingly in favor of no death, no sickness, and if they get sick, what's no worse than the flu? Why isn't that leading scientific interpretation, and why aren't we concluding based on that, that locking kids down in September is ridiculous. Why in the face of those statistics? I'll tell you why people don't know those statistics. I'll tell you why people are sensitive, afraid, and they are being brainwashed, essentially. It's a very slick organization. I saw it this week. These guys were pretty good. They had a script. They rehearsed it. It wasn't the first time they go around to God knows where spouting this stuff, and it isn't just in Orange County for their children. That I will guarantee you. Now, the collective effect of this is really, really slanting our minds, and that's for openers. Here's a little more. This is unheard, a video. There were two epidemiologists. The journalist is going to introduce them. Listen, I'll stop it and comment.
joined by not one but two uh, epidemiologists and experts to find out what the state of play is in the coronavirus pandemic. Um, first of all, we have uh, Professor Carl Hennigan, um, who is the director of the Oxford University-based Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine. Um, and uh, also on the line down from Rome in Italy, we have Tom Jefferson, uh, who is also an epidemiologist part of the Cochrane Centre, which is a, a charity that uh, works on improving the uh, evidence base for uh, medical interventions. So thank you both very much for joining us. These guys are heavyweight epidemiologists out of Oxford. One of them's living in Italy, where it all went down. These guys are serious. And again, as the journalist said, evidence-based. These guys are not po political. These are guys that have given the last four decades of their life to epidemiology. So when you get a chance, I'm not going to get through this entire video today, but when you get a chance, listen to the 45-minute clip. It is absolutely fascinating. I think it's the best I've pulled, and I've pulled many videos either on this show or listened to them in the last five months. So let's continue. Um, You're welcome. I understand that you actually are talking almost once or even more than once a day during this pandemic. So uh, you've kind of you've worked as a team already. Yeah, well, well, Tom and I have been working together for about 12 years ago, and we can go right back to 2009 to the swine flu pandemic. And subsequently throughout this pandemic, we've been really interested in the evidence. In, we've been interested in the transmission dynamics, what's happening on the ground, and Tom and I speak daily about the issues, trying to understand a lot of the uncertainties out there. So let me start, Carl, with you then, with a with a kind of bit of a broader question, which is that you know you're director of the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine. I mean, this is what we want. We want make, to make decisions on the basis of evidence. How do you feel uh, the medical response and the government policy response has been in terms of evidence-based medicine? Has this pandemic been a good period for evidence-based medicine? I, I think what we'll find as we go through this, that this has been a period where there have been lots of issues with the production of evidence and its interpretation. What people have found very difficult is to deal with uncertainty. And often what really riles me and makes me concerned is when I hear people in the media or talking and saying it's without question this is what's going to happen next so i think there's been a significant problem with predictions none of them so far have been shown to be right the second area where we try and do a lot of work is in evidence synthesis that's where tom is part of it and we both work with cochrane but we try and review the evidence to try and understand its quality what it means in terms of informing policy and while the evidence has been produced in a way that we've never seen before for coronaviruses, what a lot of it is poor quality, and it doesn't help us actually inform the policies. And a good area for that would be an area like masks. One of the issues we've come to. So what he's basically saying then is evidence is one thing, but having politicization and exaggeration, and he's going to go after the exaggeration a la CNN News. He's not going to mention that, I will. CNN and MSNBC and the rest of them constantly jamming the fear card down your throat is what this research is saying doesn't do well because it creates policy and works against science. Of course, what everyone on the tip of their tongue, CNN especially, is constantly routing is this is where the science leads us. Andrew Cuomo, this is where the science leads us. Murphy of New Jersey, this is where the science leads us. That science and their misunderstanding of it and their ineffective social policy cost thousands and thousands of people in nursing homes to die. And of the 150,000 so far, 60, 70,000 are the old age homes. So I don't see how that form of interpretation can even talk science. And this is what these guys inadvertently, without skewing it the way I just did, are going to basically say. This guy's going to bring up masks now. Listen to what he says about masks. Something that's going to be mandated on July 24th 
in the state of England, in the country of England, and is on its way to the same mandation in the United States. Just listen to what this guy is going to say. And say is, if you look at the evidence, and Tom can come in because he's done the reviews in this area for about 15 years now, is is to say, really to inform policy, what you need to do is have an approach to develop high quality evidence to do randomized controlled trials. And while we seemingly understand that for drugs, given the recent evidence from dexamethasone versus hydroxychloroquine, we, we get it there. But when it comes to non-drug interventions, things like masks, we want to throw all of the ideas of high quality evidence out the window and then use poor quality information to inform what we should do next. And that's been a persistent problem over the last 10 or 12 years that we failed to address the deficiencies in the evidence for areas like masks and what we do in the wider community. Okay, so you, you, you brought us straight into masks there. Um, so let me go to Tom then. You, you've been studying these uh, non-medical or these physical interventions for years. Uh, what is your view of the wisdom of requiring mask use among the wider community? Specifically on masks, there's, there, there's no evidence uh, that masks, apart, aside from uh, people who are exposed uh, in front lines, so healthcare workers, then How many times do I have to offer evidence, whether it's peer-reviewed journals, whether it's avatars like Russell Blaylock, whether it's Dolores Cahill, and now add these two to the list, stating once again, there's no evidence. No evidence. Now, he's going to get into this. Listen to him. And get on the website later because the air of objectivity here, of neutrality, these guys couldn't care less if we swallow rat poison tomorrow. They don't care. Their job is to provide the research, the evidence. And he just said it. There is no evidence supporting that maths are going to make a difference. And that's what I try to assemble for you on this show. And the reason it's so important, because, you know, there's an attitude of, you know, what is it? Just put the mask on and, and forget about it. You have to understand symbolism. There are symbols. And symbols are powerful. The American flag is a symbol. When you spit on the American flag, when you take down the American flag, for as much as one can say, well, what's the big deal? So what? We don't say one nation under God when we do the Pledge of Allegiance. It's just a word. It's just a mask. It's just a flag. When you add up the symbolism, the symbolic effect, it ties into our consciousness. What are we really saying when we wear the mask. Is wearing the mask an acquiescence to the censorship? Is it an admission of a lower standard of living? Is it an acquiescence to, for the sake of a virus, however righteous or not, we're going to destroy the world's economy? What does that mask mean? Does that mask mean, yes, you're right, a world, a future of finding a vaccine for each and every virus that comes down the pipe with little regard to the long-term effects on a very complex and layered entity called the immune system, that that's simply okay. What does that mask mean? And this is the way you have to understand it. And here we have, once again, another two highly qualified guys going, there ain't no evidence. Where would you put your money? On a medical officer? tied in with a government with a biasness on that basis or these guys who are out there you'll never hear their name you'll never hear them from them again and all they do is crunch these numbers and do their research listen to them does actually make any difference um, specifically on masks there is there is no evidence uh, that masks apart aside from uh, people who are exposed uh, in front lines so healthcare workers that masks actually make any difference um, but that is uh, extraordinary um, on its own but what is even more extraordinary is that 
what I'm describing is uncertainty. We don't know whether these things make any difference. We don't know whether they make any difference by the type of agents that we're looking at. Uh, we don't know whether the materials or anything like that, whether fasten, the length of uh, use and so on, make any difference. These are non-healthcare worker settings, okay? Uh, so, what does science usually do when there is uncertainty? Well, science uh, deals with uncertainty by doing uh, experiments like Carl described, randomized control trials. Now, the time for the randomized control trials was in February, in March, in April, no longer now, because the uh, viral circulation is low and we would need huge numbers. Uh, of enrollees to show whether there, to know for certain whether there was any difference with mask wearing. Um, on masks, though, um, I have seen studies that have been widely shared on social media mm -hmm. that, that investigate the, you know, on a, on the kind of physical level, um, how much a mask can reduce the spread of particles, and um, you know, there is evidence that masks work in that setting, isn't there? Even though there may not be evidence of the kind of in a sort of controlled sample style. Freddie, uh, we're dealing with some of the most slippery customers in the market, respiratory viruses. It's not just a question of the bug and the uh, person, it's also the setting, which is why all these laboratory-based experiments with plumes, for instance, there are studies looking at the plume of droplets coming out of mask I love this interview, mostly for this moment. And later on, when they talk about, because they've been, these guys are British, or at least from that area, and they've been tracking the virus now and the deaths and who dies. And you'll hear them, quote unquote, six children deaths since the coronavirus began in Great Britain. Six. And on that basis, we close the schools. Six, when there's way more for the flu. Because the quintessential issue becomes, this is no worse, aside from a very nuanced group that we didn't take care of, this is no worse than the flu. The IFR is like the flu, done, aside from that group. And if you understand the infection fatality rate and how it's created, and I've gone through this before on the shows, it's specific to the group. The IFR, the fatality rate in an old age home, is going to be enormous. The fatality rate in school, these kids can wrestle with each other all day, is still going to be next to zero. But that being the case, this gentleman is citing something very important about this mask argument. You can do all the experiments you want, and you see them online. People coughing into a mask and all the snot coming out through the other side of the mask, but not as much. And... You can do all of that you want. He's saying this is all garbage. You have to look for the data that derives itself from looking at rate of infection versus rate of infection in masks in the setting, he's saying, which means in the neighborhood, in the hospital, in the environment. This is so important to make a distinction of. And of course, what Gusecki, Johan Gusecki out of Sweden, what Wachowski has said, what a number of these guys who have been really at the forefront has said that basically a community gets a wave of infection. And this is in a, in a pandemic, a wave of infection. It hits a peak. And no matter what you do, Gusecki said it, other than wash your hands, unless you really want to isolate yourself into a bubble. And I mean a bubble. I don't mean stay home. I don't mean go out once a day with a mask on and everything else just to simply isolate yourself from other people. I mean you live in a sterile environment and nothing comes in contact with you that's not sterile. Unless you're going to do that, a virus will come into a community, look for who it's going to take, and then leave. Mask or no mask. That there are some things that bring it down. Washing one's hands was one that stood out more than anything. Going far away from people. I mean, far away. Far away, like into the woods, like miles away, works also. 
But outside of that, a virus does what a virus is going to do. And the notion that masks and staying indoors but coming out every now and then, it doesn't show an effective response. There's no way. There's no data to support this. And there's so much I put on my show at all. And the reason I harp on this, because you can say, well, so what? At least it's a step in the right direction. No, it's not. It's not a step in the right direction because the more you kid yourself, the less time, money, and energy you have to put into the game, to put into defense where you can get value. And that's the moral of the coronavirus story where we're all running around, scaring each other, exaggerating, acting like we know when we don't. What we didn't do that was apparent from the beginning is protect the elderly. And of course, in every country throughout the world, it is the elderly, especially the elderly with comorbidity, especially the elderly with comorbidity in nursing homes that constitute mass percentages of the death. Instead of that, we were running around protecting children that needed no protection. That is stupid. And what they're going to end up saying later on, and obviously we're not going to get through this whole video, but what they're both going to say later on is, we don't learn from our mistakes. There was nothing even close to conclusive and more against it that off studying influenza, masks were effective. The influenza virus and this virus are about the same. So I'm going to leave the rest for you. I am always optimistic. I think your job is to spread it. Spread my show. Get in people's faces in a respectful way. Give your opinions. Learn the statistics. And just keep going. Because we'll get to a better place. Despite what you might see out there. And cheers to Orange County. They made the smart move. School's open. No social distancing for children. No masks for children full contact, it's back to normal, and God bless Orange County for making the smart choice. See you next week. Okay, that's a wrap. Don't forget to get to Dr. Medici's website at drmedici.com to look at the pictures and review the show as often as you wish. See you next week. Okay, part two. Well, I just heard that Gavin Newsom is overruling the counties. I don't think he can do that. We're not in emergency anymore. I don't think he has that right. But that's what I just heard. I don't know if that's true. Orange County definitely voted to keep the schools open. I just heard. I mean, this is after the show, the first part of the show. So I'm going to have to follow up on this and see what's what. That's unbelievable. Why doesn't he just tell us all in the name of the Emergency Act to take us off all our clothes and put honey on ourselves and run around in, you know, ant colonies? I mean, when does it end? When does this end? When are we getting this together on this? Since when do governors control every little step of the way, this isn't adding up to me. Our Constitution still prevents this, but we have to act. I have to verify if this is true. That is truly nauseating. All right, part two. You're listening to these epidemiologists, and they're making some interesting points. First, there's nothing conclusive about masks. Secondly, you have to study a mask in the setting that it's used in for it to have any value. And the people that have done that, who are the epidemiologists who have watched masks used and then waited for outcomes like Gasek are saying, Witkowski, it they don't do anything. What's going to happen happens. Gasek says, wash your hands. I've got some novel insights. They shouldn't be novel to you but novel in the sense of how about the person that gets the infection? Why do some people cave and others don't? Of course, this is really what it's about. Where are we giving any attention to that? This is why we're so pathetic. All right, let's listen. Mask and so on. Have to be treated with extreme care. 
what we really should be doing is our experiments, trials, in the population. And we have to, we have to do them when there's virus circulating. But isn't it a matter of common sense to it at all? I mean, do you, do you believe that wearing a face covering reduces the amount that a respiratory virus can be transmitted, even though you may not have a population-wide study to prove it? The problem, the problem with that particular uh, belief is that... All right, so the journalist is asking him, look, I got it. The real studies in situ, meaning in terrain, on the spot, not in your lab, but on the spot, haven't been done. But using common sense, doesn't it just make sense? Listen to what this guy says. At the one arm of a randomized control trial, which was published in 2015, so one, one section of the people that took part in, in a study in Southeast Asia wore cloth masks. Okay? And they found that these cloth masks not only didn't work, but actually probably uh, saliva and secretions and the wetness made them more permeable to uh, incoming agents. So what I'm describing really is complete uncertainty. From 24th of July in the UK, it's going to be mandatory to wear masks in shops. It sounds, would I be right in saying that what? You don't think that sounds like a necessary or wise step? Or? Well, look, the job of evidence-based medicine is to inform decision, not to be the decision. And this is an incredibly important point. That if it All right, so before the other guy answers, what the other guy did, the one that's in Italy, is basically say, look, if you want to study on the efficacy of cloth masks... The one 2015 says it makes transmission worse. Not that it's less effective. Not that it's not particularly effective. But that it makes it worse. You're going to get sicker faster. What do you think he's really saying about mandatory face masks all over England starting July 24th and the rest of this nonsense in the United States? What do you think these guys are really saying? They're saying what the other 15 or 20 people have said that I've put on this show in the past. And you got to take this in and do something with it. You got to spread it. Don't follow the herd. The herd is going off a cliff on this because it's not just going to be the coronavirus. It's not. There's going to be lots of viruses come down the pipe. They're most likely going to increase in their presence and there's a lot of reasons for that so we're talking about setting precedent here the irony of course and i know this is way ahead of itself is how does a society respond when it completely emits have you heard one of anybody stress the way to get on the other side of this is to get healthy yes i know the holistic community but we mean nothing Relatively speaking, we mean absolutely nothing to this trend. For every one of us, there's a million of them. And this is where we have to shift the tide. Or at least you take it into yourself then. All right, let's keep listening. I think a lot of people don't get when you're actually in healthcare and actually they're making decisions. So both Tom has been a general practitioner and and at the weekend, I still work as an urgent care GP. I use the evidence to inform you about the benefits and the harms. So the question is, if you were in policy and asked us about what are the benefits and harms, we would tell you now that there is significant uncertainty. Any evidence that you bring to the table will be mechanistic, will be weak observational evidence, which has been shown over decades to have flaws. So by all means, people can wear masks or not wear masks. Policy can make the decision. But what they can't do is say it's an evidence-based decision. And I think that's really important. And there is a real separation, it seems, in my mind. And you can see what reality is. Without evidence-based decisions, for all of those of you who know me, let me tell you something. If I really thought these pieces of toilet paper taped across my face were going to really reduce transmission... I'd do it. I would do it in a second. I guarantee you I would do it. 
Because in the cost versus benefit, to reduce death significantly by doing something makes a lot of sense. But what I find is no evidence, limited evidence, and ulterior motive. And that really gets my heckles up because that sets a precedent. And when it's in the name of a mask, a mask, don't doubt me. I will end up being correct. It's symbolism. It's message to the consciousness of society is to acquiesce to idiocy. That's what those masks mean. And if you look at people wearing them, Online, in their cars, in their offices. People in my community here in the business complex have signs now outside the door. Masks required. When you see this, it is so supremely an act of stupidity. So, let's keep going. You know, I'm speechless sometimes. The difference between an evidence-based decision and something which is becoming very opaque to me is science. Is we being led by the, the science? The science is the mechanism, the plume, but it isn't the evidence. So by all means, wear or don't wear your mask, but the current evidence cannot reduce your uncertainty when it comes to the policy. See, so he's basically saying, I don't give a shit what you do, but I'm a scientist and don't ask me to support stupidity. That's what he's saying. I'm here to translate. Okay, so if we, if we move on from, from masks, um, and Carl, maybe can I, I can ask you about the, the sort of wider question of the overall shape of the pandemic at the moment. I mean, what we see in countries across Europe is that it seems to be very strongly on the way down. In some countries, it's sort of almost down at nil. Um, meanwhile, in America, we are seeing some resurgence, or what looks like resurgence, in a number of states. Um, what's your kind of overall picture of where we are in the life cycle of the pandemic? Well, look, I think it's really, it's been a very interesting phenomenon from an epidemiologist's perspective. The first thing is to say we have seasonal effects every year. We see increases. Now, what he's going to go on to say is, is fascinating. He's going to say there's a difference between terming something pandemic and terming something seasonal. And he's going to make sort of an argument, not conclusive, but he's going to make a temporary argument for consideration, which is this is seasonal. If it's more humid and hotter, it tends to destabilize. If it's dry, it tends to stay stable. But the point is that He's starting to think this is seasonal, like it's going to be the flu. It's never going to go away. It's always going to be there. It's going to come and go. And we can just add it to the list, the list of risks that we have to deal with every year. And you can see what's coming down the pipe here. Kids, by the time they're 10, get about 40 vaccines. What are we doing? And again, this is a... a a scenario that we see with with many things and my point is the effect of one vaccine maybe nothing the effect of two maybe nothing maybe but maybe not but you see you have to understand this from another angle now what's really happening when it's 40 vaccines and this is about the cumulative effect of multiple vaccines corollary to this is the concept and the concept is, is that our species doesn't survive. We can't thrive. We can't muster up within ourselves what's required. That evolution, over as long as evolution is relevant, didn't give us an, inside, an insider's advantage if we invoke it. And what we have to do is hide under a rock and wait for a vaccine, and that's our future. I would rather be dead. Take me to a virus. I am not kidding you. This is sickening. Is it infection like illnesses? And there are about 40 or 50 that we know about that cause illnesses. And the predominant one that everybody's focused on has been influenza. Now we're seeing coronaviruses, which we've seen before. For lots of people, it seems like this is a new infection. But there are seven now coronaviruses that we're aware of that are in humans. What's different about this infection? 
was the sharp uprise, particularly in the number of deaths. And if I take Italy, it was very similar to UK. We had a two, three week, very steep uprise in the deaths. And here in the UK, we peaked on April the 8th. And since then, they've been coming down. Today, we've just had our Office for National Statistics number, which has said for the 12th week in a row, deaths have come down. And actually now the number of excess deaths are below the five-year average and have been so for three weeks. So we are trending in a direction where we're seeing reductions in admissions. Did you hear what he said about excess deaths? Excess death represents the amount of death as compared to what we would normally see as the amount of death. So if we look at the total amount of death in the UK in a year and we look to see if the death rate the the number of deaths this year is above that number or below that number we're seeing that even with the coronavirus the number of deaths compared to last year in the UK is lower than it was the year before that's what he means I don't like to go by excess death people find this relevant I don't but just so you understand what he means by it, and perhaps you'll find it relevant. It, at any rate, is another statistic. It comes from the vantage point that, look, death is death. People die. That's the deal. So if one year we have this plague and the next year we have that plague, but when we look at it each year, the number of deaths are about the same, then look, this is life. Of course, this is not politically correct, and it does have a downside to looking at it that way. That downside being somehow it makes it okay, like you just don't do anything about it. But that's not the point. The real point is to say, if we didn't flip the world upside down for the flu, why are we doing it for the coronavirus when in terms of the number of deaths, it's about the same? Doesn't mean you don't act to mitigate, to stop, to reduce. It does mean that in the name of, whoa, let's just draw the line here, this is the plague. It's out of control. We're all going to die. Just ask Don Lemon and Anderson Cooper. They know. And on that basis, let's shut down the schools. Let's shut down the economy. Let's destroy lives. Let's have riots and the rest of it. And that is the point. From that vantage point, that there's no more excess death in the UK this year than last year is very relevant. Reductions in critical care use and reductions in, de in deaths. But we've never seen this sharp uprise before. Now, that's been pretty consistent in countries like Spain, Italy, Belgium, and here in the UK. And one of the keys about the infection is to look at who's been affected. And this is quite interesting because Tom and I wrote about this, the difference between pandemic theory and seasonal theory. And in a pandemic, what you expect to see is young people disproportionately affected. However, I think we've had in the UK now, I'd have to check today, but we've had six deaths in children. That's Did you hear that? I want you to hear that again. Because you can trust this. Listen. Difference between pandemic theory and seasonal theory. And in a pandemic, what you expect to see is young people disproportionately affected. However, I think we've had in the UK now, I'd have to check today, but we've had six deaths in children. That's far less. He said six deaths. Six. Six. I mean, if you really sit on that, man, if you really sit on that, doesn't that tell you we're in a lot of trouble? Look at what and how we responded. That doesn't suggest there's a motive here. We are either hit the point where we're not sane anymore, we're not rational, or somebody's got a motive that's not coming to the table. It's one of the two. But we are by no means making decisions or formulating perspectives based on reality. Clothe the schools. I just told you, I just heard Gavin Newsom has overruled those counties in the state of California that want to open the schools. 
with what evidence? And he's going to be the first to stand up there and talk about saving the children and science dictates his choices, and it's just a lie. Six deaths. Than what we normally see in a pandemic. The flip side is more than 75% of the deaths have been in over 75-year-olds, which fits with the seasonal theory much more so. So that's an interesting observation that we first noted. Interestingly, what's come with that, while we've been in lockdown and lots of people are talking about lockdown strategies, has it worked, has it not? What we've found in the UK is that while we've been in lockdown, what happened and what went wrong is more than 50% of care homes had outbreaks of the infection. That means two or more people had the infection. Do you hear that? What he said about lockdown is how stupid it is and how it doesn't work because he's saying that there was massive death in the geriatric facilities when they were in lockdown. Well, Cuomo was ordering face masks, lockdown, don't come out of your house. The old age homes were, were being decimated. You see? And this is what I mean. This is what he's saying is the flaw in bad science, in non-evidence-based decisions. While you're lying to yourself, you're not taking advantage of what really works. So, there's an old age facility, a nursing home. Your parents are in it. There's a thousand people in the nursing home, which is a lot. And one person gets sick. From that point on, resources need to be deployed to test Every single person and anybody from that first moment is separated from the community. That's number one. Number two, all healthcare workers are paid more than normal to stay on site and they have to be tested. And when they have to leave site and come back to site, they have to be tested. Fevers, PCR testing, antibody testing, T cell testing as we're evolving that. Everything that could be done to determine who's sick and who's not, has to be monitored closely, and the money needs to be put out by the government. That's what we should have done. Instead, we sent it all to social services as we collapsed the economy, as parents had to spend way more dough for their kids because their kids weren't in school. God knows what's coming in the fall. And what is the nuanced group, the niche group, that's really vulnerable going to get out of that dollar? Nothing. And this is who we elect, and this is how they act. And you're telling me there's not an ulterior motive? So while the community transmission may be as low as 5%, it's tenfold higher in care homes, who've accounted for nearly half the deaths here in the UK. I want to take this time to just talk about this. Infection fatality rate, the IFR. The IFR is the number of people that die divided by the number of people that are exposed. The number of people that die divided by the number of people that are exposed. Exposed, that word means the number of people who've got it in their body, the virus, and who have been confirmed, tested, PCR'd, antibodied, serology and PCR. We're positive they have it, and then the number of people who have it in their body that didn't get sick. The number of people who have it in their body that sometimes we have to estimate because they don't get sick. The number of people who, who never got sick, who are asymptomatic, but are positive on serology. That number is large. And the number on top of people who died, divided by the number of people in the bottom, grows over time. It grows. And the reason it grows is, as time goes on, we test people and find that they didn't even know they were sick and they had it. After that, we have to add in the number of people we can't test that have been exposed. And that's a tough one because this is a strange virus. And the reason is T-cells take it down. T-cells don't make antibodies. There's something between the macrophage and the T-cell that prevents people from getting sick, such that serology isn't ever going to detect antibodies. And if they do, the antibodies are faint and short-lived, but that doesn't mean immunity is faint and short-lived. So this is complicated. But what 
it's telling us when we really look at the amount of exposure over time is the IFR, the infective fatality rate. If you go into the general public is like 0.1, 0.2, maybe 0.3, and it's not that high. That's what it's showing us. The IFR is very comparable to the flu. And on that basis, we have to ask ourselves, why have we done what we've done? And that will lead you to politicization and also to agendas. This is why it's so important for you to understand these statistics. Now, if you go into an old age home, and out of 1,000 people, 100 die, that's 10% mortality. If all the people that, if all the people there in the old age home, if they all had tested positive, say 1,000 positive tests for the coronavirus, and 100 died, that means the case mortality rate is 10%. 10% is 100 times worse than the flu. If you go into certain niche populations where the death rate's going to be in that dangerous group, in that vulnerable group, the IFR is going to go up. So yes, when you hear the IFR might be 1%, that's if you look in certain groups. Well, what you do when you take a country, a locale, a geographic area, is, is you add them all up. When the CDC does that, that number has come way down, and that's the CDC. But if you eliminate the 75-plus age group and you look at the age group that's lower than 50, your IFR is less than the flu, way less than the flu. If it's under 60, it's way less than the flu. Once you get to about 70, if you don't add comorbidities, it's still not as much as the flu. And at 70 plus, if you add comorbidities, then it's a little more than the flu. That's what you bring to social and societal policy. That. And what does that have to do with closing schools? What does that have to do with wearing masks? And doesn't that have everything to do with making sure the vulnerable do have the money to protect themselves? until at least a vaccine is, an, is, is conceived. That's not happening. We're not protecting the elderly because we're too busy muttering around these lies, and that's my point consistently. It's not that you let the old die or that you risk children unnecessarily. It's when you weigh the costs against the benefits. If you're not starting with hard science, you're going to get lost with your social policy, and that's what we're doing. And as far as the kids transmitting it, uh, listen, I'm going to get to that crock later on. I'm going to do another show on that. If you're asymptomatic, are you shedding virus? And more than half in areas like Spain. So some things have gone radically wrong. So that's an interesting area as well to think about. In terms of where we are now, just to come, when you look at the USA, it's really interesting because USA, if you go to New York and the areas around New York, New Jersey, they had a very similar pattern to what was happening in Europe. Lots of sharp uprise of deaths. But if you go to places like Texas and California today, in fact, they have nearly as many cases as we do in the UK now, about 75%. But these, these areas only have three or 4,000 deaths. They have about one-tenth of what happened in New York. That's right. California does have a very low death toll. However, as I pointed out on multiple occasions on the show, they're lying through their teeth about the death rates. The death rates are grossly exaggerated for a bunch of reasons. And when Dr. Azike out of Chicago gets up in front of a nation and speaks specifically about the state of Illinois being the top health official and says, you don't have to die of COVID to be counted as a COVID death isn't that like saying we're lying about the death rates, about the number of dead? When Senator Jensen out of Minnesota is now being investigated for nothing any more than basically saying he's been pressured, as is Dr. Anderson of Bakersfield, been pressured to make sure that you put on that death certificate COVID death no matter what they die of. If, it, if you haven't proven it with serology, 
if you haven't proven it with PCR, but under the pressure of ER and ICU, you suspect it, there you have it. If somebody comes into a hospital and is dying of cancer, but they test for COVID because the hospitals don't segregate well enough and they got COVID and they have COVID, they didn't die of cancer, they died of COVID and cancer's on the side. So it's a, another COVID death. And this is what they're doing and that's for openers. And then of course, there's cases. And I don't think I offered a better argument against the lie of this case rise than what the whole state of Texas is doing. And I put a video on a few weeks ago in Collins County at a city board meeting, a woman from health sitting there and basically saying, if we know that your neighbor tested positive and we call your neighbor and we ask your neighbor who your neighbor was in contact with, everyone they tell that was in contact is a COVID case. And if your neighbor says, I'm not talking to you, I don't want to speak to you, I don't want to contribute to this lie, that neighbor definitely counts as a COVID case. And if that neighbor isn't COVID positive, hasn't been tested, but that neighbor was simply in touch with you, talking to you, near you, in the same house with you, in the same garage, shook hands with you, was within six feet distance of you, then because you tested positive, they assume your neighbor's testing positive. And this is what this video is saying, and this is going on all over the state of California and God knows where else. So from the cases to the deaths, do not tell me we're getting honesty. And that is why President Trump took this away from the CDC, because the CDC is not measuring correctly. They're not. They have no intention of, and they're in bed with Fauci, and Fauci's in bed with Gates, and can't you see what's coming down the pipe? Doesn't this at least warrant an investigation? So there seems to be something radically different. So while everybody's looking at the cases, look at what's happening with the deaths as well, because the deaths are not rising like they were in March and April. And there's something different happening with the virus right now that it doesn't seem to have the same virulence and the same impact on mortality. So there's two things that I'd really like to just follow up on. So the first is you said it, it has more the pattern of a seasonal um, infection than a pandemic. Does that mean that the explanation for why it's come down so much in Europe is that it's summer, basically, and we shouldn't take from that that it's gone for good. It may very well like to be back in the winter. Well, we've just we're, we're involved at the moment. One of the things we're doing at the moment is a review of transmission dynamics, looking at these particular issues. And we've just put up an update, actually, looking at this particular issue. What it looks like is the stability of the virus is far less when the temperature goes up, but particularly humidity seems to be important. The lower the humidity, actually, the more stable the virus is in the atmosphere and on surfaces. So when we compare to other countries, what we did see in the Northern Hemisphere, when the conditions were right, rapid spread, transmission and impact on death. Now, it's interesting to see what happens as we move into the Southern Hemisphere. They tend to have outbreaks now at this point. They Interesting, isn't it? First, rather than a pandemic, let's call it seasonal, like the flu. Then let's point out cold, rather cool and humid is the worst thing for the, excuse me, cool and dry promotes transmission. Hot and humid, the two variables that reduce transmission. So where it's hot and humid, we should see less. Where it's cold and dry, we should see more. And there's an argument to be made for that. He's making a good argument. He's leaving it open-ended. So would I. We don't really know. Very interesting. I don't know what to think about that. I don't know if that's good news. It may well be true. It may well be that this is a seasonal thing and that if you're in a better temperature zone, you're going to have less. Of course, there's a lot of things around that. Where it's cooler and drier is where you're going to get more vitamin D deficiency. I mean, cooler, definitely. Why? 
that's the northern areas, less sun, generally. But again, to me, we're out in no man's land on this topic, but I think it's worth his say, because he's studying it and he's looking for trends. Let's continue. January, in effect, is happening right now. So that's why we're seeing down below in places like Australia, suddenly having outbreaks that are making the viruses reappearing. And that probably is to do with the stability of the viruses, more so on surfaces than actually in the air. The second aspect of the seasonal effects is that we are more outside, more ventilation, which also may have an impact to say our viral load is reduced at this time of year. And that's also important then on potential virulence. But does that, does that mean that you're not persuaded by theories of uh, greater immunity levels uh, explaining the decrease? I mean, because, you know, there, there's always these optimistic idea that maybe through other kinds of non-detectable immunity, actually we've, we're slowing the spread and the, and the decrease seen across the Northern Hemisphere is, is explained by immunity levels. You, you, don't, you don't buy that. Well, no, I, I think, look, there is quite an interest in lots of points we're now coming to. So first thing is, as we come through March and April, is to say there is a group of people who are more susceptible at that time of year. So, for instance, your immune system isn't as strong. That's the vitamin D argument. But number two is you may have had other co-infections. You may have just had an infection, so your lymphocytes are not primed. You're not ready to fight off another infection. So they're interesting aspects. The third aspect is to say one of the issues we also saw, if you look at the UK data over the last five years, we tend to see a very bad winter. So in 2017-18, we had 50,000 excess deaths that year, mm. followed by good winters. So if I go back to 2019, in fact, we had about 15,000 less deaths in over 85-year-olds than what we expect. Actually, so trending into this year, we had a all right i'm going to cut it here you guys listen to the rest of this yourself it's worth every single second and you should know this young journalist obviously british does this subscribe to them unheard they're so dynamic really love their stuff this has been a wonderful wonderful exchange between three highly knowledgeable people this young journalist i forget his name freddie is his first name uh, he's he goes back with Wachowski at the beginning of all of this. He's done an incredible jo job, incredible job. But this this guy said something that I want to pick up on. And this is this thing about immunity, herd immunity. And it sounded like Freddie, the journalist, was actually pushing that off to the side as if we're not achieving herd immunity. And this is where I have to make comment. And this is where I'm going to go down on record. And I haven't been wrong yet going down on record. There is another kind of immunity with the coronavirus that has to do with the T cells. And I think we're going to have a tough time finding out just how that works or who's got immunity based on T cell immunity. This is going to be tough, but they are up the dress of this in the vaccine industry. The people looking to make vaccines are looking to figure out ways to pump up your T-cells, whether it's your Nave T-cells or your T-helpers. So your vaccine guys know about this. That aside, the bottom line is T-cells, they're kind of between the innate and the humoral immunity. But I got to tell you, the variability in the readiness or the aggressiveness or the reserve energy of your T-cell populations, meaning the energy required to mobilize a T-cell assault, is very variable, and it relates so much more to what controls your innate immunity than your humoral immunity. And yes, you can distinguish between what stimulates innate versus humoral. Humoral is much more like... You've been through many wars and your memory cells, your B, as in boy, memory cells are ready to start deploying antibodies, this, the process. That's more of a mainstream war. That, that's more of, of a part of immunity 
that doesn't show as much variability in its effectiveness. So whether you're 40 years old or 75 years old, the humoral immunity is kind of ready to go. And yes, there's differences, but less than your innate immunity, which includes your T-cell variabilities. What that means is when this virus hits the population, people with better innate immunities do much better. And who are those people? Young people, not newborns, but by the time you're two years old, you are ready to rock and roll. Not humorally, not your adaptive, but your innate. That's why God gave us such a big thymus gland. This T-cell stuff is all mediated in the thymus. So one thing about determining what the immune state is, what immunity is defined by in a population has to do with things we've never really depended on in terms of measurement. And it's really changing the concept of herd immunity. But for any of you in science that are listening right now, epidemiology and otherwise, I'm going to submit to you something you need to think about, and that is against an R nugget of two, two and a half, maybe three, shouldn't we be seeing much more death? Come on. This is going to be a little worse than the flu. And if you take out the old age groups and the elderly, it's less than the flu. If we weren't coming in with some inbred defense against this, against what we know in our nugget of 2-5 to be conservatively, you should be seeing a lot more death. That should put a question mark on this. That question mark is... If we're going to claim that the only way we can measure immunity is herd immunity, meaning antibody testing, perhaps something else is going on. And of course, we know what that is. It's T-cell, but we can't measure it. So we have a problem calculating immunity. We do. That, I will leave you as the wild card here. But what it points to, in the end, is build your health. There's a concept. All of this. From the science, to the societal, to the political. And where are the dialogues by our institutions about building health? Unbelievable to me. Yet, I must be an optimist, because I see a bright future. I will bid you good day. You have a great week. Study this show. Learn the statistics. Think about what you can do. And do it. Until then, Dr. Vincent Medici signing off. We'll see you next week.